Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. I'd ask how you are, but it's... Everyone's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Everyone and everything is terrible. Um, so... Yeah, let's move on. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> Welcome to History of Sex. This is going to be the one time we ever do uh, just a really speedy intro because no one's allowed other houses. So no, this is History yeah, of Sexy. It's the current times and all we're doing is sitting at home. So Yeah, but yeah. we got some good stuff to research, so that was good. Yeah, that was Because fun. we're a podcast where people ask us history questions and then we do our best to answer them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's about it. That's all you need to know. One certified historian in you and one not that in me. One extremely talented and productive writer in you. Well, not productive right now. Okay. <laughs> no one's productive right now. We just stare at walls and think about the last time we saw grass. <laughs> or have a long conversation with our mutual friend ever about when you used to be able to just pop to the shops and get a can of Fanta. Yeah, that like, was nice. Yeah. Remember that those was, times two weeks the ago? Be- the before times. <laughs> yeah. What are we talking about this week? <laughs> this week, we're not talking about Fanta. We're talking about various aspects of women's suffrage. We kind Yay. of have three questions in one, but they're all about women's suffrage, which is the right to vote. And this comes from Lena Hacker. And she asked, why was New Zealand so quick to give women the vote? Thus, Making Janina's heart happy. <laughs> Is it true that the first ever woman to be voted into the British Houses of Parliament never took her seat? And why the fuck did it take Appenzell Innerhoden until 1990 to give women the vote? Yeah, so great questions. We're going to answer all of we're them. We're going to answer all of them because they're all good questions. One yeah. of them isn't really about women's suffrage, but it's about Irish nationalism instead. And I live with an Irish nationalist, so I'll talk about that all day. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen his? Has he? You seen all of his flags on his Animal Crossing Island? Very I have. Good. I have seen all of his flags on his Animal Crossing Island. He, every so often he shows me his Animal Crossing Island. The first thing he did was name it Aya. Uh, mm-hmm. The second thing he did was make his like the little flag outside his door. Is it like mm-hmm. a is an Irish flag? I think he's trying to make an Irish flag flower bed, but he ha- you have to breed flowers to get green ones. Okay, so that so might that's take some doing. time. Yeah. So he has some feel- feelings on the matter. <laughs> and last night when I was researching oh, the second does, part of this question, I was t- talking to him about it, and it involves the um, first uh, 1918 Sinn Féin manifesto. And um, about 40 seconds later, we had, I think, the fields of Athenroy and then come out ye black and tans. So <laughs> he had had some whiskies, but still... Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, so we've both got questions that we'll talk about all day. And then we've got some Swiss history. And I have learned how just really unique and bizarre Switzerland is. And the fact that it's not really called Switzerland. And, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot going on yeah. there. Yeah, but we're going to start with New Zealand. And you are refusing to tell me the notes because you tell me there's plot twists. So I'm super excited yeah. to find out what these are. I didn't put them in our shared document because I wanted to uh, just take you on a journey that ends kind of... I mean, it's not really a punchline, but it's kind of a punchline and it's it's definitely delightful. Yeah. I mean, not... It's delightful in a complicated way. But I thought that before we get to that, I would just talk about the establishment of voting rights in New Zealand in general because I think it's really interesting. New Zealand is a really, really young country. Yeah. So it didn't... Its first election was wasn't till 1853 at which point okay 
you could vote if you were a male, if you were a British su- subject, if you were 21 and over, and if you owned land worth at least £50 or held a lease that was worth at least £10 a year. So there was no there was no racial restriction on that. So, okay. uh, so Maori men could vote if they owned land because they were British subject, subjects. Were there restrictions on owning land? Well, this is this is where we get, it gets complicated yeah. <laughs> because there weren't restrictions on owning land, and some Maori men did, but they were very very rare because culturally land is communally owned. So okay, it wasn't very common for a Maori man to just have the deed to you know his acres um, because yeah. it would be owned by the entire iwi or the entire tribe. So while it wasn't codified as racist the practice in practice it was yes uh, but there was uh there was also in the midst of this they ended up uh, extending voting rights to anyone with a minor's license which they kind of okay. did because they were afraid of an uprising because there had been all these violent riots and protests in australia uh where mi- when minors were denied the right to vote because they didn't own or lease property okay. so they just decided to get ahead of that <laughs> just, <laughs> just let the minors vote minors a vote but then in the 18th, because this is, I want to talk about this as well, because I was always very proud of coming from the country that was the first to give women the vote. But what I didn't realize until I moved here and how, found out how complicated suffrage in the UK is, women's mm. suffrage in the UK is, I got all paranoid. And I was like, have we been celebrating the, the wrong thing? But it's okay, <laughs> because actually, when we gave women the vote, which we did in 1893, that was universal suffrage. Women were the last piece of the pie. So it okay. was all women. Yeah. It was everyone. It was still British subjects. So if immigrants from other countries were disenfranchised until that wording was removed from the law, but basically universal suffrage, 1893. 1893, which is super yeah. early. Like uh-huh. super early. Yeah. It's not the first though. I found that the first is the Pitcairn Islands. Pekin Islands are an interesting situation. Weird. It's a wild. If you if you don't know, Pekin Islands are where the mutineers of the of the bounty went with their Tahitian wives, basically. Quote unquote wives, yeah. Quote unquote wives. Currently, the population is like fifty people. There are fifty people yeah. who live in the Pekin Islands. Been a lot. Uh, we we don't need to get into it. It's a very, very fascinating situations. There's a lot of situations that I'd rather not get into right now, but they are. It's an interesting. It's a super interesting and unique place. I did not know that they even really had their own, like, devolved government, if you will, because they're like a British colony. Yeah. So, or a British overseas territory. But then yeah. British, all of the different ways in which places belong to Britain, but and are ruled and not ruled by them is fucking complicated. It's very, very complicated. It's also a place where, like, the population peaked at, like, 230 or something. Yeah. So you have to sort of worry about the genetic situation. <laughs> I mean, the, there's so so much going on there. But New Zealand is the first, like, proper place. Like, yeah, nation con- state. Like, country. Yeah. So, anyway, we're at men, 21, British subjects with the property requirements. In the 1960s, there was a drive to make sure that Maori had representation in Parliament okay. because they were really outnumbered by this point by Pākehā or by white New Zealanders. So there was a lot of concern that even if a Maori person stood for parliament, they would never be elected because 
white people would never vote for a Maori candidate was was what was assumed probably fairly. So what they put in place with the Maori Representation Act of 1867 is a distinct Maori electoral role where instead of voting for a local MP, Maori men would vote for a regional MP who was Maori to represent them in parliament. So there was like double representation for each area, like a Maori representation and a non-Maori no, representation. The, or... the, there was it was drawn into a whole new map. So there were only okay. four seats at that point, which was not representative. There should have been if they'd done it per capita, there would have been fifteen Maori MPs, but there were just four. So they kind of you know hit swing and a miss. But it was still, <laughs> I think, I think the motivation was good. But it, it was, was a swing. Ins- yeah, <laughs> it was to ensure that there was Maori representation in Parliament in a way that couldn't be, like, there was no there was no going against it. You were going to have four Māori MPs, at least. There was an attempt at equity rather than, like, quote-unquote equality. Like Yeah. That you, and rather than saying, oh, everyone's got their chance, it's just that there happened to be some massive structural racist bias that will stop you from ever getting anywhere. They go, well, exactly. we know that there's structural bias, so here's the thing that we're going to overcome. Yeah. yeah. And the, the Māori role still exists today. There are now seven seats. Okay. On it, I think there's the South Island is one, and then the North Islanders are divided into six other areas, which is really, really controversial. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's changed over time. It used to be if you were mixed race Maori, you could choose whether you wanted to be on the general role or the Maori role. Okay. Now, any person of Maori descent can choose which role you want to be on. And we use an MMP system. So if you're in the general role, you vote for your MP and you vote for your party. And that's how we get parliament. If you're in the Maori role, you still get the same party vote, but you vote for your Maori MP rather than the general MP. Okay. And it is like every so often there are moves to abolish it, but they never quite go through, which I think is because people still like Maori people still want it. I think eventually, ideally, if we keep trying to be less and less racist, than we've been in the past, eventually we'll get to a point where no one is afraid of losing representation because they move to a solely general role. Yeah, of, of being discriminated against specifically for being married. Yeah, whereas if if anyone in the country feels like they need that to make sure they're represented, then they should have it, I think. Yeah. Probably. But because technically most Maori men didn't meet the property requirement, they still couldn't vote, so in the same act... That was done away with for Maori voters specifically. So you didn't need to so to own property to vote, which meant that Maori men had full suffrage before Pākehā men did. Oh, okay. By 12 years. It took 12 years to get universal male suffrage because they basically dicked around a lot. <laughs> there was all this, it's always the dicking around. <laughs> yeah, there was all this bitsy back and forth about maybe we should let these this distinct group of men vote. Maybe we should let this distinct group vote rather than just let's take away the property yeah. requirement completely and therefore all men over 21 who are British subject, subjects can vote. But finally that happened in 1879. Okay. So that's, yeah, universal male suffrage, 1879. All that's left are women, which is obviously <laughs> part of a movement that's happening all over the world by this point, which is the thing, the thing I think that is interesting about women's suffrage is that there are two main pillars to it one of which is great and the other of which sucks. The first being equality of the sexes, which is great and brilliant. Mm-hmm. And the second one being uh, conservative values, in particular the temperance movement. Yes. Yeah. Because it was predominantly conservative 
politicians that were pushing for women's suffrage because they thought that women would vote for conservative values okay, yeah. more than men did and they wanted to have that little sway in parliament, which I always think is interesting and does come into play in New Zealand really strongly, which we'll get to. So at this point in time, New Zealand is still really, really young. It was It's a settlement, so it's still only a few decades before been predominantly young, strong, hearty men who came over to turn it into farms and to go to the mm-hmm. gold mines and to do all of the things that, you know, young, strong, adventuring men travel literally the entire way across the globe to do. So uh, women are really, really important in that sort of situation because they're scarce. So yeah. <laughs> they're like a, <laughs> they're a, a useful, valuable, valuable asset. Yeah. Resource. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you are a valuable resource, you have power and you feel that power, like you are sought after. So I think it's like there is an extent to which the suffrage movement was driven by these women who were like, you can't, you couldn't, you can't do this without us. So, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously they're pretty powerful, but also among men who wanted calm, nice families and and pristine, genteel society, there was concern about all of these young, vibrant, single lads just (laughs) rocking about and and fucking stuff up. So they wanted women to be able to help them legally restrain that sort of wild frontier chaos. The idea of, like, getting married to calm yourself down. Getting married to calm yourself down as well, but also that if they wanted to put in a law that said, you know, you can't roughhouse and carouse on a Sunday night, then they (laughs) wanted women's votes to back them up on that. (laughs) Yep. Um, So the suffrage movement in New Zealand was led by Kate Shepard, who was an absolute babe. This is one of those things that, again, I had to look up in this moment of fear a few years ago when I realised that, like, Susan B. Anthony and Emily Pankhurst were, like, racist fucks. Yeah. Not only racist, but used racism as an argument as to why they should, women should be given the vote, that the vote of white women could be used to drown out the vote of black men. Yeah which is just revolting. So I had this moment of panic a few years ago where I was like, oh my God, was Kate Shepard? Like, <laughs> was she a racist? Yeah, am I going to have to lose this heroine of my past? But no, she was, one of her famous quotes is, um, all that separates, whether of race, class, creed or sex, is inhuman and must be overcome. Okay, good. So, it's so okay. she's a legit can, hero. She's a legit hero. A friend of mine uh, is a musical theatre composer and he wrote a punk rock musical about her. Amazing. It's really cool. I'll put a link to the soundtrack in the show notes because uh, it's really great. <laughs> so they just delivered petition after petition in the 1880s and early 1890s. The last one they delivered had more than 30,000 signatures, which when you consider that the total population of New Zealand at that time was 700,000, it's pretty impressive. That's great, yeah. Oh, and I wanted to – so Kate Shepard – distributed this pamphlet with the 10 reasons why women of New Zealand should vote. I'm not going to read it all. I'll post, I will also include a link um, on the coffee page or in the show notes or somewhere. Uh, I wanted to just read the first two points because they're incredible. Point number one is because a democratic government like that of New Zealand already admits the great principle that every adult person not convicted of a crime nor suspected of lunacy has an inherent right to a voice in the construction of laws which all must obey. And point two, because it has not yet been proved that the intelligence of women is only equal to that of children, nor that their social status is on a par with that of lunatics or convicts. Which is just, I think is just like, just a bit snarky and fun. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's not yet been proved. Maybe one day. I mean, yeah. No yeah. one no one has proved it, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. Yeah, <laughs> like, maybe... I always find those things interesting where they're just like, well, it's clearly self-evident that we can't let criminals and mad people vote. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you wouldn't be saying that the criminals can vote, would you? You're like, well, mm, yeah. maybe. Yeah, I definitely think that you should not be able to lose your right to vote, but it was 1890, whatever. And, and they were significantly further ahead than literally everybody else. Yeah, they were doing all right. The UK is like 1928, you get actual universal. So- no, yeah, 1928, I think. Yeah, something like that. Is universal suffrage. And then there's this weird thing that I don't understand, so I'm not going to pretend that like a tiny percentage of people had that gave them like extra voting rights or something that was oh, removed yeah, in 1945. Is, that was a wild thing because New Zealand had the same thing. Like if you owned land in several different districts, you could vote in all of those districts. Yes. So you got more. And because elections weren't held on just one day, each district would have its own voting day. So it was actually possible to travel to all the places to you move around and get how, you know, however many votes that gave you, which did also mean that when um, the Maori electoral roll was established those Maori men who did own land had a vote on the general role as well as the Maori role as well which is interesting okay. um but yeah that was abolished at some point I think yeah I think 1945 it was abolished in the UK so people could still vote in multiple places until 1945 yeah I think it was abolished earlier in New Zealand but I can't I'm remember gonna assume exactly it was, when it's generally better than us on most stuff so I mean, we're very small, so it's easy to see where their problems are, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You say that, but Switzerland's very small, and Um, we're going to get to them in a while, and they're bad. Yeah. We are in the late 1880s, early 1890s, and several bills were put put through Parliament to give women suffrage. At this point, New Zealand had a House of Representatives and a Legislative Council because the parliamentary structure was dictated by England. So mm-hmm. the requ- there was a requirement to have two levels. The Legislative Council was abolished um, in 1950. So now we only have the House of Representatives. So we basically, we just have Parliament. Um, and then the Governor-General, okay. but the Governor-General doesn't really count. Um, so He's the one who's technically like the representative of the Queen in New yeah, Zealand. Yeah, yeah, so has to like sign off on stuff, but would if he didn't, then there would be a problem. They'd just um, push him off a mountain. Basically, yeah. yeah. So all of the bills that were put forward for women's suffrage easily passed the House of Representatives, but then failed to get through the Legislative Council. So it, the equivalent of failing to get through the House of Lords, really. Okay. But the counter movement because there was of course a counter counter movement obviously towards women's suffrage but it just kept kept doing shitty things that were revealed so it had constant bad pr you know they would do petitions <laughs> to deny women the vote that were then found to have like 50 percent of the signatures were false and that sort of thing yeah um so the people weren't impressed by that uh, which came right into Parliament. So this is the beginning of party politics in New Zealand as well. This is the first time there was a party leader rather than an independent, which was the Liberal Party, led, led by a guy called John Balance, okay. who was a total feminist, absolutely supported women's suffrage, avowedly said that he believed in the equality of the sexes and was great, perfect on side. But then he died uh, in, 1980, oh. in 1893. And he was replaced by a guy called Richard Seddon, who I think like it was just your your typical boorish 
I speak for the common man politician. He feels... paternalistic guy, yeah. Basically a little bit Farage-y. Okay. He also used to, before he was in politics, he ran a pub. He had a lot of important (laughs) rich friends who were in the alcohol business. So didn't want want to give him the vote because didn't want temperance to come in, which it never did in New Zealand in the end anyway, but that, that was the fear. But... It was really obvious that the bill again was going to pass in the House of Representatives. So he started publicly saying that he supported it because he could see that it was clearly the will of the people. But while he was in public saying he supported the bill, he was lobbying their legislative council to vote it down again. And because he was being such a cunt, two councillors who actually opposed the bill voted for it in protest <laughs> against him and so it passed amazing that's it's amazing when someone's personality is so off-putting that they change the face of a nation i know and like obviously i would prefer it to have passed because all men in parliament were like yes women should vote obviously but it's kind of fun that it passed because <laughs> the prime minister at the time or the premier as they were called at the time was just such a dick that people wanted to get one over on him I, I really like that. So, like, essentially the reason we did it so quickly was, one, you know, there was huge support from from the country. There were, there were men who believed women should have the vote and a lot of women who really wanted it. So, like, all social change, that emotional drive was really strong. But also we did it so early because our prime minister was a fucking asshole. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Um, that's extremely antipodean. like like, yeah yeah if uh, it's the only real place where that would happen is like oh yeah no we just fucking hate him so we let the women vote (laughs) (laughs) if it'd just been a little bit more honorable about it then maybe it would have taken another couple of decades (laughs) but well there you go Mm -hmm. that's a good story it's great i love it it's the best yeah i like that i like that a lot of people would like we just need to rein these young men in and they're not going to vote for it. So better get some <laughs> girls in to do it. Yeah. Because girls can be trusted to be temperate. Yeah. Also, a nice wee tidbit about Kate Shepard is she was actually English. She was from Liverpool and then moved to New Zealand when she was like 20, I think. Okay. And she had, she and her husband had this pair of really good friends and then her husband and her friend died. So she married her friend's husband. And like. Oh, Okay. Yeah, you don't even know if it's like a thing or if it's just they were so close and then so lonely at the same time that they bonded, you know, through being widows together. You sometimes see that stuff on Reddit, like, oh, my husband died and then his best friend really looked after me and now it's like two years later and we've fallen in love. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe they just mourned together and then that grew. Yeah, I think shared grief can bring you close, you know. I think, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's nice. I'm glad to know that she found two nice husbands, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good for her. Good for her. Good for her. <laughs> We're going to be saying good for her a lot with the next one as well. Oh, what a babe. What a babe. So the next part of the question is, is it true that the first ever woman to be voted into the House of Parliament never took her seat? To which the answer, short answer is yes. <laughs> And the long answer is that Countess Constance Markiewicz was the baddest of asses <laughs> in of the whole of badasses in the what was then called the British Isles of the early 20th century and puts basically every other woman who ever lived to shame. She's so. just the best. She's the best of us. 
She's just amazing. So she was also technically kind of English. Mm-hmm. She much like Kate Shepherd, she was an Englishwoman who moved and then kind of really took on the <laughs> struggles of her adopted nation. Mm-hmm. So she was English and then kind of grew up as a part of the what's called the Protestant Ascendancy in Ireland, who are the mm-hmm. Protestant aristocracy, English. Anglo-Irish aristocracy who ruled Ireland, basically had all the power, had all of the ability to vote, had all of the land and Mm -hmm. just stomped on everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, Her dad was an explorer and kind of one of, if you can have good guys in that Anglo-Protestant ascendancy, then he was one of the gooder ones Mm -hmm. in that during the Great Famine in the 19th century, he gave food parcels to his tenants and didn't kick them off so (laughs) pretty good thing to do in the middle of a famine yeah so they owned land in sligo which is on the west coast and that he unlike some other members of the (laughs) we're not going to get into the great famine but he he helped them out basically which was at the which many may consider to be a basic human tenant of life. <laughs> well, I think but, we're in a time right now when we can see how rare it is. Like, yeah, the amount of I did see a tweet. I didn't investigate because I don't have the bandwidth <laughs> right now. But I did see a tweet claiming that Jared Kushner is demanding his tenants continue to pay rent while he himself is seeking, like, yeah, mortgage whatever you call it, ceasing no not no paying longer his paying mortgage. his mortgages because of the pandemic. Obviously, uh, he belongs to a family that is all uh, country and you wouldn't expect anything less, but I don't think he's the only one behaving like that by any stretch. No, and there were a lot of landlords because the Protestant sense owned all the land in mm-hmm. Ireland in the 19th century who uh, were the baddies. Um, but so <laughs> she comes from, and that kind of gave her and her sister, who was a suffragette in England called Eva, uh, kind of class consciousness, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically. Um, she then went and studied art and then went for a good old-fashioned aristocratic frolic around Europe. Mm-hmm. As you do. Where, as you do, if you're an aristocratic person, then you go for a frolic around Europe. And so um, in the kind of early 19th, uh, early 20th century, she was frolicking around Europe. She met a guy called Count Markiewicz, married him. Uh, unclear as to whether he was really a count. <laughs> But she took the name Countess Markiewicz. They certainly had tons of money and kept frolicking around until they landed back in Ireland. Mm-hmm. At which point the kind of apocryphal story goes that she was stuck in a like country house with nothing to read. And she found a copy of Sinn Féin magazine mm-hmm. um, and read it and became completely overwhelmed with nationalist fervour for the Irish plight. She was like an early 20th century Patty Hearst. Yeah, and then she basically turned up at her first ever nationalist meeting directly out of a party at Dublin Castle, which is like (laughs) the centre of British power in Dublin, wearing a ball gown and a tiara, Mm -hmm. walked into the meeting and was like, all right, lads, (laughs) here to help out. (laughs) And they were like, get to fuck. And she was like, I like you, I'm staying. (laughs) And and stuck around because she took a good Irish ribbing, basically. Like when they were like, what the fuck are you doing here? Get out. She was like, oh, oh you <laughs> boys. And then she became like immediately hyper involved. Like she wasn't just like the behind the scenes kind of bankrolling it or anything. She was like out marching for 
women's rights. She was out start. She started a paramilitary recruiting organization called Fina Erin, which recruited teenage boys and taught them how to use guns. Great. She joined the Irish Citizen Army and designed its uniform and wrote its anthem and was like a member of its leading council alongside James Connolly. She was regularly, repeatedly arrested. Mm-hmm. She protested when the king and queen came to went to dublin she was arrested for throwing rocks at their pictures what a babe and (laughs) handing out pamphlets about how they were it was an illegitimate occupation of ireland basically which is true Uh, yes it is and then basically in ireland in the 20th century and the early 20th century is a, a roiling revolutionary movement over several decades where many, many attempts were made through various, using lots of different kind of asking lots of different people for help to force the English out because they kind of worked out that they were never going to be able to talk the, the British out of just go, like just to go home, <laughs> <laughs> basically. And so the Irish nationalist movement became considerably more militarised and then had, in 1916, this culminated for the first time in the Easter Rising, which was an attempt to take over various places in Dublin all at the same time and particularly focused on the General Post Office, where you can still see the bullet holes to this day. Mm -hmm. And there was kind of six or seven days worth of fighting until the British sent massive boats down the Liffey and just bombed the shit out of everybody. <laughs> just pretty and decisive. It, turned, it was extremely decisive because it turns out that a paramilitary organisation of effectively civilians with like not that much, they have no heavy artillery or anything, cannot fight against heavy artillery. So she was arrested. She fought in that. She killed some people. She fought at the City Hall and she fought at St. Stephen's Green and was those images of her kind of standing around with a gun on her hip and things. And then she was arrested and put in Holloway Prison. Most of the other leaders were executed um, and she was only spared because of her sex, which really annoyed her. Uh, <laughs> of course she it was is, like, because she's just as yeah, good as she a man. Was, basically, she's like, don't patronise me like that. Like, I was there, I was doing the same thing that these lads were. I designed that uniform. <laughs> I was wearing that uniform, although all of the descriptions of her from the Easter Rising are like she's wearing this military uniform, but she always wears this hat with like flowers and feathers on it. (laughs) And she's always wearing a great hat with flowers on it. So 1916 failed. She's in prison. Uh, 1917, 1918, there uh, there is a general election. And general election at that time, there's 105 parliamentary seats are in the island of Ireland. And... Mm -hmm. This is the first time that there was a political movement, really, to try and force the British out um, and was the creation of Sinn Féin as a political party. Not, and I have to make this very clear, the Sinn Féin that exists now Mm -hmm. uh, because there have been about 100 splits and different (laughs) breakdowns and coming back together. And Sinn Féin, which exists now, is has existed since the 1970s and it's a completely different thing. Um, but this Sinn Féin is the first time it's a Sinn Féin as a political party and it stands on a manifesto, which is literally, we will not go to British Parliament. <laughs> and that is it. Um, hang on, I'll read you a wee bit. 
Uh, this is a beginning. Sinn Féin aims at securing the establishment of the Republic by withdrawing Irish representation from the British Parliament and by denying the right and opposing the will of the British government and any other foreign government to legislate for Ireland. Dot, dot, dot. And then to the end. The present Irish members of the English Parliament constitute an obstacle to be removed from the path that takes us to the peace conference by declaring their will to accept the status of a province instead of boldly taking their stand upon the right of the nation. They supply England with the only subterfuge at her disposal for obscuring the issue in the eyes of the world. So basically their argument was that every time an Irish person from like Westmeath or Sligo mm-hmm. goes to the English Parliament and sits and votes, then they are agreeing that the British Parliament is the place where that can rule Ireland, basically. Yeah. That, that is a legitimate power in Westmeath and Sligo. So they stood in uh, all of the seats and they won 73 of them. That's pretty impressive. On that, that's their sole platform is we're not going to go because we don't think it's legitimate. Mm-hmm. And so she wins from prison. She stands from prison. She stands in Dublin St. Patrick's and she wins 66% of the vote. She's just, you know, what? which in Dublin is very impressive because Dublin is the centre of the Protestant ascendancy. Mm. So she doesn't turn up, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she stood saying that she wouldn't. Because she stood saying that my one thing is if you vote for me, I won't go. And yeah. not only will I not go, I can't go because I'm in prison. <laughs> um, but that is like the sole reason why people vote for her um, and is largely why, you know, not largely, but one of the reasons why Sinn Féin is now a different party because they now have a platform. <laughs> but that, that's why she doesn't show up. Instead, they start the first DAL, which is the Irish Parliament. Mm-hmm. They hold their own elections in Ireland to elect their version of MPs, which is TDs. And she wins again, wins Dublin, and she is made into the Minister for Labour for mm-hmm. the first doll. And this makes her the first ever woman to be a cabinet minister in the entirety of Europe. She was so cool. She was so cool. And then everything kind of goes a bit wrong because then you get the... 1921 separation of partition of Ireland and then there's a civil war and then there's all kinds of other stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. and then it that gets into a, a whole different whole different podcast to quote our <laughs> good friend Caroline O'Donoghue <laughs> <laughs> if you're playing things don't say um, on podcast bingo <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah, that, that's a whole different thing. But she was the first ever woman to be voted into the British Parliament and the first ever cabinet minister in the whole of Europe. And she was badass. And then, just to show how great the English this are... Is, I'm so mad about this. I'm so mad about the statue. When I say great, that's in extremely heavy inverted commas. The second woman to ever be voted in um, was Nancy Astor. And so the first to sit and take her place. Yeah. So the first woman to ever actually sit in Parliament and have a 25-year-long um, political career <laughs> was Nancy Astor, who was an American Nazi. Uh, and then recently no, she wasn't a Nazi. She was an anti-Semite, an anti-communist, um, an anti-Catholic and a nightmare and a horrible woman, Tory bastard. But the only reason that she wasn't a Nazi was because she thought they weren't nice enough to white women. <sighs> yeah. Uh, otherwise... 
she'd have been on it, but she thought that they were not white feminist enough, basically. Yeah, horrible, horrible person. She's like prototypical white feminist. Like, mm, don't really care what you're mm. doing over there, but what about me? <laughs> and now she has a statue. And now she has a statue because, of course, Theresa May gave her a statue. Of course she did, instead of giving one to the biggest badass of potentially all time. There is a statue of Constance Markiewicz in Dublin, though, so... Um, and she looks super cool because she's got her hat on. And I'm going to put some pictures on the Wii Kofi because there's this um, photo set of her from 19... So either 1915 or 1917, where she had pictures of herself taken in her uniform, like pointing a gun over a barricade. And like, it's obviously on like a studio set, but <laughs> the fact that she did it is amazing. <laughs> to be fair, also, I think that she would probably be very annoyed if... The, if- all these years later, the English put up a statue of her. I think she would come back from the grave and kill I us all. I think she would. But that doesn't mean they should have given one to Nancy Esther. <laughs> and they should have just skimmed over the entire subject, to be perfectly yes. honest. But, uh, yeah, she'd be fucking furious. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, uh, yeah, no, she'd just be mad. But, yeah, so that's why she didn't take it. It's very complicated. The uh, history of between Britain and Ireland is very long and very terrible. Yeah. Um, and from the period of about 1900-ish to now, um, gets more and more complicated as it yeah, goes. Yeah, it's wild. It's a lot. There's a lot going on. It is wild. Next year is going to be um, the year that the partition... It's going to be 100 years from the partition of Ireland. Um, and down south, they did a lot of big things for the 1916... 100 years from 1916... Mm. Like they had huge celebrations and like they stood outside, they got people to stand outside their GPO and read. They wrote a proclamation of Irish independence and they like read it out and it was like a huge, big thing. So it'd be interesting to see (laughs) what happens next year after, because then you get a war and then you get like the partition is a hugely controversial issue to this day. Also, we Um, still don't know how we're going to deal with that border from the end of this year. Oh, yeah. So that's fun, too. <laughs> I mean, it's extremely fun if you like really complicated issues with no right answer. <laughs> and who among us does not? Who among us doesn't love one big grey area? <laughs> one big grey area with a lot of blood in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. That's the answer to that Great. one. And that leads us to the final question. Which you were also kind of taking the lead on because I read about it and I was got so fucking confused. I like <laughs> I came into this year document and saw that Emma was writing stuff and message being like, I'm so glad you you understand this enough to be able to write notes because I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, it took me a good couple of reads to get what was going on because it turns out that Switzerland is a world of complicated things. <laughs> And technically, Switzerland is not its name. Technically, it's called the Swiss Confederation. And it's a federation or a confederation of semi-sovereign municipalities that has existed in various forms for like 800 years. Which is fun, Mm -hmm. but makes this very complicated. (laughs) (laughs) So the basic deal is that Switzerland, as a country, or like as a the federal power of of Switzerland, Swiss Confederation, based in Basel, 
gave women the right to vote in 1971, which is very late. Lagging lagging (laughs) behind, lagging well behind. Which was lagging behind a lot. Although they were the first state to grant universal male suffrage in 1848, which is interesting. Good to to know where their priorities were. (laughs) Yeah, regardless of whether you owned anything or not. And don't get me wrong, that is good. That is very good. Universal male suffrage was an important achievement. It was. It was a very good achievement. But then they basically stalled. Basically, from what I can tell, there was a massive kind of constitutional overhaul in 1848, mm-hmm. which folded universal male suffrage into it. But then we're like, well, we did that. Don't really know to ever talk about the Constitution ever again <laughs> <laughs> for a very long time and didn't want to change anything. So it took until 1971 to get female suffrage, although there were people agitating for it and passing petitions, which they were very into for some reason, from the very beginning. And then a couple of different territories within the Swiss Confederation didn't get around to it until 1990. (laughs) And the final one, so Appenzell-Innerhoden is a canton. It's teeny tiny. It has a population of about 16,000 people. Mm -hmm. It is very rural and is primarily dairy farmers. There's like one town and a canton is basically like a little semi-sovereign state. It can do whatever the fuck it likes, essentially. <laughs> and they have only, they are very unwilling to enforce federal power over the states. So it's like basically set up like the Americans where you have states who can have their own little laws. So the best example I could think of this was marijuana in America right now, mm-hmm. whereby marijuana is federally illegal. Yeah. So at a federal level, illegal. But in different states, like Colorado, it is now legal to own. And in other states, it's legal for medicinal purposes and so on and so forth. Yeah. And if the federal government wanted to, it could do a massive crackdown and force all of the... They could have a constitutional argument about whether it was legal or not, but they don't really want to. So (laughs) it's not considered to be a big enough issue at a federal level. So they just let in the states do what they like and the federal government, like the FBI are not going in and enforcing the federal law on people who are growing weed in the house. Yeah. They could, but they don't. And that is broadly what happens in Switzerland, whereby the federal government could enforce stuff, but it really hates doing it. And their states' rights are so strong. So it's it's incredibly rare. And then on top of that, Switzerland also has a very literal form of direct democracy, especially in the rural regions, which is called Landsgemeinde, mm-hmm. which I had to check how that was pronounced, <laughs> which is basically where all the eligible citizens, being literally all the men, gather together in like the village hall mm-hmm. and do a kind of... A, li- a literal kind of ballot vote. So they have to do it there. And this was abolished in the big cities in 1848, but it continued to exist in the in the cantons. Sure. So that's how they pass most of their kind of day-to-day or kind of low-key kind of governance, right. basically. And then, but they also have this thing where everyone has the right to referendum and everyone has the right to bring, I say everyone, men have the right to bring things to be voted on because you can also have votes where 
like a normal vote, basically, like where nobody has to go to just one place and do it. Mm-hmm. So ballot box votes or the Landsgemeinde. Right. Which makes democracy super personal, <laughs> very, very direct. Yeah. But also means that everyone is very involved in it. Mm-hmm. And this means that Swiss male identity is basically really tied to that, particularly in these rural cantons. Right, because it's very much a social act as well as a political one. Exactly, and a a powerful leader. So things like like the NHS in England and stuff was kind of pushed through by a powerful leader Mm. against the will of a lot of people and that often happens like a powerful leader can gather support all over the place or kind of in america you have executive orders and stuff like that Mm. or the supreme court can force stuff but in switzerland that just can't really happen yeah (laughs) Uh, and there's just all of these bizarre kind of constitutional and traditional mechanisms built in where being a part of being a male part of the democracy is super important Mm. and this is particularly in the areas of Appenzell Inderhoden and next door is Appenzell Außerhoden, who are these very rural dairy farming communities who, and there was a really good quote in one of the articles I read, they cultivate quaintness. Um, <laughs> they are like the, I can't think of a good example, but they like, they have all of this special regional stuff mm-hmm. that they are very attached to. So they have this very, this particular kind of, this particular culture with special festivals where people dress up in special regional cow outfits, a special pastoral painting style that is like the Appenzell Auserhoden painting style and a special kind of music, Mm -hmm. all of which seems to focus really heavily on cows. (laughs) And they are kind of like big, rough, hard worn I get up at 6am and I go to bed at 2am kind of men Mm -hmm. and as a result they are like super protective of their culture and their landsgemeinder is part of that culture right it's like part like they all go into town once a year and they all have their like vote and then they all do their special fucking painting about cows or whatever and so they, a large part of the arguments went, because this came up constantly um, around Switzerland and it gradually changed because it became kind of embarrassing. But in this one area, it came up over and over again. And every time it would come up, the arguments would not be like, oh, women's places in the home or women aren't competent, which mm-hmm. is what it was about at a federal level. But we're like, mm, this is our culture. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> like if you let women into our local traditions then you're going to dilute our local culture and our local culture is more important than women voting plus i'm sure they don't even want to anyway sure <laughs> yes and so appenzell Innerhoden were the last holdouts but they were forced to they never voted to allow women to vote in appenzell Innerhoden. but in appenzell Außerhoden next door they did vote in 1989 to allow women to vote. Cool, 1989. <laughs> well yeah. done. The way that groups basically, like women's activism groups, got changed through, and this is in the whole of Switzerland, which is interesting, was by being very conservative. So there's no kind of radical 
movement like there was in like the US and the UK. Like there's no mm. Kitty Marion's throwing bombs through things. Yeah. Or no radical militant suffragette movements. Because the women as well are like this. <laughs> they also are very protective of their special painting and special mm. culture is part of what they are as well. So women came in and kind of very gently changed the conversation. Mm-hmm. But what re- there are two things that really changed the conversation quite strongly. The first is that by the time you get to 1989, m- a large proportion of the younger men, so men under the age of like 40, are men who have come of age since women, since 1971, yeah. and have grown up with women in the rest of the country being able to yeah. vote. So it's not like an abhorrent change to them. It looks weird to them that their wives can't vote. Yeah. Like, how come that girl gets to vote, but my daughter doesn't? Yeah. And then, so it doesn't seem as revolutionary to them as it does to their parents and grandparents. <laughs> and secondly, we now have international television. We now have international, mm-hmm. globally connected systems. And people from around the world were starting to look at Appenzell Innerhoden and Appenzell Außerhoden and go, Look at these fucking weirdos. (laughs) Look at these rubes from backwater Switzerland. How embarrassing are they with their stupid cow outfits? Let's all... And whenever they would have a vote on it, TV crews would come from around the world to watch and laugh. (laughs) That's that's going to feel pretty shitty. Exactly. And it was looking like a massive national embarrassment. So eventually, in 1989... Appenzell Außerhoden had a Landsgemeinde vote and agreed that they would let girls in, but only for four years as a trial period. (laughs) (laughs) Just see if they can take it. (laughs) To see if it was okay, basically. (laughs) Um, And in 1993, they had another vote, but they had this vote and literally just news crews from around the world showed up to watch. And like from... Like J- Japanese news crews were there, like presumably putting like boing <laughs> sound effects over the top every time they saw a Swiss person. But they like this was an international incident basically because everybody went to watch and laugh. So they kind of felt the the international pressure to join in with the rest of the world and not and that like protecting their culture wasn't worth this. It was beginning to be that protecting their culture was actually them looking like twats. Mm-hmm. And so Appenzell Außerhoden voted it through for four years. And the next year, the Swiss government at Basel were like, look, we can't have this anymore. <laughs> like, we generally look all right to the world. Like, we've got quite a good PR, like, public image. Um, and so they, for one of the first times in Swiss history, forced through a, a change um, and forced Appenzell Innerhoden to change. And they were very grumpy about it. I mean, yeah, sure. It previously in the 1970s, there had been a vote in um, Appenzell Innerhoden to say, do you want to let women vote? And 85% of people said no. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. But they didn't really seem to be like, oh, girls suck. It was more like, mm, but my lands <laughs> I have feelings about it. <laughs> I have so many feelings about my lands. And they all of the, a lot of the arguments are like, mm, well, we couldn't possibly let girls in because it's not big enough in here. Like it's literally a village hall that they vote in. So quite, they did like a survey of how many people they could fit in their village hall and then said, oh, well, if we let the women in, then 
we couldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to fit everyone in so can't can't do that sorry bye yeah no uh, yeah, yeah, yeah um <laughs> These are insurmountable problems, and I don't know, and you know, I just feel like, sorry. How could we possibly get around it. this? <laughs> yeah, so that is how the the final place in Europe, anyway, uh, <laughs> got was forced to let the girls mm. in. That is wild. It is wild, and Switzerland is a very wild place. Yeah, who knew? Who knew? I did not know. I always assumed that Switzerland was a perfectly reasonably normal place. I, yeah, thought that was, like my impression of Switzerland was that it was so normal that they're side dialing the rest of the world for being chaotic and weird. But actually, maybe they're just so busy being so wild that they don't even notice what the rest of us are doing at all. They're just mostly quietly wild. I feel like the main reason why they forced Appenzell Innerhoden to stop being embarrassing was because they just didn't want people looking at them anymore. I think they like it when nobody looks yeah. at them and everyone's like, oh, the Swiss, so boring with their clocks. No. <laughs> so <laughs> boring just being neutral all the time. <laughs> they are very anti-military. Um, I mean, I'm with Reading the like, whole process of... All they ever seemed to do was have quiet marches and write petitions. And then like, there's this massive petition in the 1920s where like hundreds of thousands of people signed this petition and took it to the federal government and said, we want women's suffrage. And the government just said, okay, <laughs> and didn't respond to it at all. Like they did this huge ritual giving the petition over. Um, and then the federal government just went <laughs> and didn't mention it ever again. And everyone went, well, I guess that failed, guys. Uh, <laughs> and that was the end of it. Like, nobody bombed anything. Nobody <laughs> Which, it feels like that's the kind of thing they're happy with. Like, yeah. you write a petition, we'll consider whether we want to give the petition. But when international news crews start coming and looking at stuff, they're like, no. Yeah. Yeah. If they just stuck to petitions and not been embarrassing, then possibly women still wouldn't be able to vote in. <laughs> It'd be like Saudi Saudi Arabia or the Vatican City, where obviously women aren't allowed to vote. Yeah, it's but it's interesting the different journeys we all took. <laughs> it is interesting the different journeys yeah. we all took. It's one of those things as well that I have thought about so much more. I think since moving here, just because it's it feels like a much more important political country like New Zealand we kind of bumbled along obviously we have some shitty politics we just had nine years of national being shit um yeah which was like pro like and that was there was serious impact at that don't get me wrong like child poverty skyrocketed international there was visible poverty in a way that I'd never seen before um mm -hmm. as a result of them like people begging on the street was something that I just never saw growing up but then under Nationals last nine year, nine years in power, um, that just started happening all over the shop. So it's very, very like it is does make a difference, obviously. Yeah. But comparing it to here, where the Tories are just systematically like pulling Chipping the stilts away. out from under the NHS, and uh, you know, it, so when I started voting here, I was like. Oh, like the, this power of having the vote was real to me in a way that it hadn't been when I voted at home. And it's been very, yeah. very demoralizing to to use it over and over again and, and for it to have no effect um, on anything. This is going to be a silly question, possibly. Mm -hmm. But what form of voting does New Zealand have in general elections? Is it first past the post or do you have something better than that? 
we have a better system. So we used first past the post, I think, first past the post, we got rid of that in the 90s, I think. So now we have a system Good. called MMP, which is mixed member ah. proportional, I think is what it stands for. But basically you get to vote for your MP and then you get yeah. to vote for the party that you want to be in government and you don't ha- and those votes don't have to be consistent yeah. so you can vote for your local green councillor and labor can get your party vote or vice versa or whatever you want okay. so it's a system that kind of actively encourages coalitions uh, which i know is kind of yeah. a dirty word in the uk because you talk about when you talk about it you talk about the coalition with the, um, coalition. the tories and the lib dems which is obviously a disaster but but ever since that system came into place in New Zealand, we've had a coalition more often than not. And currently okay. we have a three-way co- coalition, which I feel kind of mixed about. It's so the currently New Zealand's government is Labour, the Greens, and New Zealand first. Labour and Greens, yeah, makes total sense. They're like left, they're all progressive and great. New Zealand first is a nationalist party. They're one of our more okay. right-wing parties. Like, New Zealand's political centre is a lot further left than the UK's, but in New Zealand First are a, a right-wing party. So, like, obvious, and the leader of that party, Winston Peters, who was just horrible, is our current Deputy Prime Minister. Um, obviously, I do not want a party like that to be part of the government. I do not want a person like that to be Deputy Prime Minister. But I think that it's good to be able to have a co- like a bipartisan coalition because it just means that more voices from that country are represented by the sitting go- government which i think is powerful and yeah. i do hope we ha- we have an election this year and i do hope that labor uh, strengthens its position so it can just be labor green because that's more in line with what i believe but i don't think that it's bad to have voices from the other side in the government yeah, um, that was basically the entire argument when we had the referendum for alternative vote in 2010, 2011, mm. which, oh, you'll let, there was a BMP at the time with the great values yeah. who were on the rise and you'll let the BMP in. And everyone was yeah. like, well, on our side, we're like, well, okay, then if enough people want them, then surely they should be, they should have, they should have some yeah. <laughs> Also, you would let, first of all, I suppose yeah, just sucks. The Greens in and... <laughs> they're at- uh, yeah exactly it's- it always breaks my heart because now I live in Northern Ireland and so for every other election like we have Stormont elections and local government elections mm-hmm. like city elections and I get to use single transferable vote which is my favourite and I love mm-hmm. it and you get to do numbers all the way down oh that's nice that should be, that's, yeah. that should be the American primaries that situation is just remember two weeks ago when we weren't constantly (laughs) stressing out over the virus and instead we were constantly stressing out about the american primaries yeah (laughs) now we get to speculate whether joe biden is dead though so um but yeah so which i love doing but it makes when i have to vote in general elections just doing one stupid cross Mm. feel just even rubbisher than it did when I lived in England and it felt quite rubbish then. Yeah. But now I'm like, ugh. Yeah, it's really dumb. The point? Also, I don't I really don't like my MP. I'm in a Labour safe seat and I'm always going to vote Labour. In this country I would like I align, I think, a bit more left than Labour. I mean, not more left than Corbyn, but more left than Labour without him, I think. But also, there's no point in voting for a smaller party because everyone hates coalition yeah. so much. You're like it's still yeah, 
It's still kind of a two-party yeah. system and it's shit. It basically is. Except here, though, you get slightly more. Mm, that's nice. But in that, there's at least three parties. But but one of them doesn't take their seats. <laughs> <laughs> Although they do they do have more of a manifesto. Like that, a thing that people always throw at Sinn Féin as they exist currently now in Northern Ireland is that their purpose as a party is it's largely that they don't take their seat. So they never go to Westminster and use their office there. Mm. But they do work in their community so sure. they do still do the stuff that you need an mp to be doing in your community basically so there's still someone that you can go to if you need help right. with something but and they do still do kind of political lobbying in the community and stuff mm-hmm. and they do have more of a manifesto now which is where they did so well down south the down south party is a different party to the up here party Sinn Féin the history of Sinn Féin is very interesting <laughs> it is so complicated yeah in that when you say, depending on when you are talking about or and which specific part of this island you're talking about at certain times, you are saying the same words and talking about completely different <laughs> things. <laughs> which is quite fun. Somebody should ask us a question about it. I'll get Connor on. Yeah, yeah, do it. <laughs> he will never come on. He'd rather cough. <laughs> Fair. I think that answers the questions, Janina. I think it does. Yeah. What are we talking about next time? Oh, we've got a really fun one next time. I think we're going to do mainly fun ones during yeah, the plague times. We're not going to do any depressing we're ones. Gonna, yeah, <laughs> we're going to, yeah, we're putting off our um, sort of hard, hard, harsher questions because everything is depressing enough right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I apologise if I mispronounce this. Uh, so, Viania Karap- Karapolos says, what is the brief history of wrestling as an art slash performative slash cultural phenomenon from Turkish oil wrestling to the creation of the WWE? This is a really fun one. This is going to be a super fun one because wrestling has been a part of many different cultures throughout history and has popped up in lots of different ways and is now, and I feel like people don't talk about it as much. I feel like two years ago, I could not escape on Twitter people wanging on about wrestling. Yeah, yeah. People who love it really, really love it. Yes, they do, and it's impossible to mute it because they're always using different I hashtags. Know. They're not, I mean, if they use hashtags at all. If they use hashtags at all, but it's always the hashtag of the match that they're watching, and you're like, I'm like, tonight, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do really love the that a sport that is essentially grapple on each other until one of you falls down uh, has this huge legacy and, like, massive impact. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. <laughs> It is. So, yeah, so we're going to do the brief history of wrestling. Yeah. It should be fun. It should be great. Yeah, it will be a fun place. Yeah. And then when the world looks better, then we'll get back to the grim shit. <laughs> <laughs> Watch this turn out to be the grimmest ish, like, turn out that actually wrestling is super <gasps> grim. <laughs> we'll try and make no. it fun. <laughs> Let's hope for better. If it turns out to be super grim, we will pivot and do something else. We'll just we'll just describe wrestling matches for now. <laughs> I'll just talk about Glow and how much I love Billy Gilpin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or when whoever it was threw the other guy off of a sixteen foot thingamabob and it hit the Dodgers table. <laughs> I don't know about this. Uh, it turns up in places all the time, um, but I can never remember which two wrestlers it is. And this is going to go out, and we're going to get like sixty five of our friends text us to tell us what it is. <laughs> yeah. I do think we need to be prepared for the fact that people get really fucking hurt in wrestling. They do. It's brutal. It's very brutal. Right, we're not going to talk about wrestling. No, no we're, we're talking about next week. 
Okay. <gasps> Janina. Yeah. Where can people find us? Oh, if they want to ask us a question, which they can ask us at any yes, time. Yes, we should do that stuff. They can find us on Twitter at Sixy History Pod. Yes, or all of the references and pictures and things and a link to the musical that Janina <laughs> talked about will be on Kofi, which is uh, Kofi slash HIS Pod or um, Bitly slash. Um, support sexy history. History, or you can email us at sexyhistorypod at gmail or Facebook, which honestly we barely use, but still you can. Um, <laughs> is at um, slash uh, sexy without the e history pod because mm-hmm. Facebook approves. And I am at nuclear teeth. Um, I'm at J nine and if. And Oliver, who edits us and produces us, is at Kiwa. That's everything, I think. Um, I think that's everything. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, bye, Janine. Bye, Emma.